Good evening, God speak. God's doing some cool things, right? Yeah. Amen. Well, uh, thinking about uh, Sean Foyt coming back, and I was just thinking of the baptisms and communion and a message on that weekend, that Saturday and Sunday. Just, uh, if I could give it a, a title, it's the crazy weekend of goodness. It's going to be People, water's going to be flying everywhere. Communion's going to be happening. People are getting saved. It's pretty cool coming off the weekend of Easter. We had uh, 2,800 or 2,085 people here through the services this last weekend. Yeah. And along with that, we really want to... Uh, Press into prayer and seeking the Lord. So you guys got a little flyer, Rend the Heavens. And want to briefly share with you before I get into the message about this. We're going to have 40 days of prayer that leads up to Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is the first Sunday you guys opened up full-blown wide a year ago. And so we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit's outpouring. You can see on the back prayer requests that you can be praying for. We're praying for revival and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, labors for the harvest, personal spiritual growth, an additional campus, legal battle with the county. That all goes together, right? We're looking for more space and we're going to court. That's, that's, that's the way it is here at God Speak. So uh, uh, if you want to fast one meal during that 40 days or uh, one day, day or a couple of days, whatever it might be, but we'll be meeting here three times for prayer during that 40 days each week. So starting this Tuesday morning at nine o'clock here in the sanctuary, if you want to come and pray, your schedule's free and you want to come pray at 9 a.m. this Tuesday or 9 a.m. this Thursday, and that will be happening all the way. And then if you don't have that opportunity and you want to come in the evening, we're going to have a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. So we're going to have three days of prayer along with our 40 days of fasting and prayer for Ren the Heavens and see what the Lord does as we are praying for an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And if you're reading through God's word, our message is going to come from that portion of scripture. If you don't have a Bible tonight, we're going to be turning to Luke chapter 14 tonight. Just raise your hands. Our ushers will get you a Bible, but you can pick up one of these out in the lobby, anchored in God's word. And uh, the preaching is mixed together with the Bible reading. Now, last week we looked at Jesus's incredible invitation to Easter dinner, RSVP, get your reservation quick, surrender your life to Jesus. We are on our way to an incredible marriage feast of the Lamb, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, blessed are all who are invited to that experience, to the, this heavenly feast. But it's not only a invitation, if you will, to come, but Jesus follows upon that with these massive crowds that are following him. He now brings the strongest call to Christian discipleship in all of the scriptures. The passage before us in Luke chapter 4, 14, bar none, takes the cake for calling the heart, the mind, the soul of an individual. It's not just a raising of the hand and putting Jesus in your pocket and going through the rest of your life. It's really him now owning your life. You're surrendering your life. By, like Paul the Apostle said, you are not your own. You are bought at a price by the precious blood of Jesus, and now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we want to know what that looks like. What is that call to discipleship? And maybe you've never heard that call. Maybe you're a young Christian, or maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, 
but you have been drifting in your walk with God. You know, life's a long time, isn't it? And you go through all kinds of ups and downs and twists and turns. I tell people the Christian life's kind of like the Snake River where I grew up. It's sometimes it's going east, it's going north, it's going south, it's going all over the place. And I watch some Christians, that's what their life looks like, right? But I tell them, assuredly, the, the river, it's headed towards the Pacific Ocean. So you're going to make it because the good work that God begins in you, he's able to bring it to completion. And I want to encourage you in that because as some of you might feel a little squishy on that point. Like, I hope I make it. I hope I make it. Hey, if Jesus paid the price for you and you surrendered your life to him, you're going to make it, man. You're going to make it. And so you, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to have some tough seasons. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go through times of doubt. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go through times of conflict. And the cost of discipleship, I've entitled this passage of scripture, The Mathematics of Faith, because Jesus tells us to sit down and count the costs. So check this out, Luke chapter 14, and hopefully you've opened in your Bibles. We'll be reading verses 25 through 35 as we see this incredible call to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Picking up in verse 25, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock and mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost the its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to us. Lord Jesus, as you are calling us to this radical example of discipleship, we pray that we would have open hearts, that we would have open minds, and that you would speak to our souls deep inside of us, Lord, that you would knock aside those obstacles, those barriers that are hindering us in our walk with you, and we pray that your grace would do that as we put our trust and faith in you. We ask it in your name, amen. You may be seated. The mathematics of faith in this passage of Scripture, we're going to be looking at six thoughts in this passage of Scripture, and that is face love, face desire, face finish, face fight, face forsaken, and face flavor. 
So as you look at this as it unfolds before us, you realize the very first obstacle, as a matter of fact, this is a shocking rabbinical style of teaching to startle you into an awake, alert, spiritually attentive state by Jesus' words. And when he tells us this in verse 25, now as the great multitudes followed him, Jesus truly had the gift of uh, preaching down to size, a manageable size, a group of people. Because this large group of people, they, hey, Jesus is healing, he's popular, we're following the new young hip rabbi. But then he teaches like this, and man, people would stop and take pause. Do I want to follow him or not? Because his claims are quite incredible. Verse 26 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. You say, wait a second. I thought the Christian message and the message of Jesus is one of love. That's true. You theologically know that Jesus' message is for us to honor our father and our mother. This is one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus teaches it and emphasizes it, and the apostles do in other passages. So what is Jesus saying? He tells us as fathers and mothers to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, in the admonition, to cherish them, to care for them, to raise them up in a tender way of training our children in the ways of the Lord. He wants us to love our brothers and sisters like we would love ourselves. So if we know theologically the message is us walking in love, honoring our parents, loving our wife, loving our husband, loving our children, loving our brothers and sisters, our siblings, what's up with this call to discipleship? Well, this radical call of action is a radical call that is a teaching of comparative values. Meaning that when you fall head over heels in love with Jesus and you want to do only his will and now as an adult, your mom or your dad would pull on you to have you take another course other than follow Jesus, whose course do you need to follow? Jesus' course. And because of that, mom and dad may feel like, in comparison, ever since you became a Jesus freak, all you want to do is read your Bible, pray, and do what Jesus wants you to do. Have any of you ever heard those words before, right? You've heard it from family. You've he heard it from maybe uh, a husband or a wife or your grown kids or your younger kids. Like, how come you guys have to be so crazy about your Jesus love, right? And in that understanding, you see the comparative illustration that Jesus is giving. He's saying, mom and dad actually feel like you don't care for them much anymore because you would rather do what Jesus wants you to do than what they want you to do. You know, your husband or your wife, you might have just put them on the throne of, of, of your world and, and everything was about your spouse, but then you fell in love with Jesus and all of a sudden that husband felt like there was another man in his wife's life. And it's Jesus. That wife felt that like there's another man in her husband's life. And it's Jesus. Because there becomes this affection that God wants in our hearts. And this is what he knows, you guys. Unless you understand this, you will be stumbled by this teaching of Scripture. It is a teaching of comparative loves that Jesus is supreme in the heart of the child of God.
And since he is supreme, I can now love and honor my mom and dad the way I need to. I can love and honor my spouse the way I need to. And I can love my children the way that I need to. But preeminently, I love him and will do what he wants me to do. Even when all the other voices of loving relationships in my life begin to pull on me and to try to pull me away from God's will. You're going to experience that in the Christian life. When some of you came to Jesus, was your family really excited about your newfound conversion? Hmm? Did they throw a party? No. They're like, oh no. Oh no, the Jesus freak has joined the family. Well, I guess we'll have them pray at Thanksgiving. What else do you do with a Jesus freak? I don't know. Right? Bless the turkey and the cowboys. Hopefully they'll win. And there's a tension that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And when we understand that, this long journey of faith has a lot of relationships that can hinder us, that can pull us back, that can keep us from God's greatest experience of a life flowing with milk and honey. You see, throughout the scriptures, you have examples of this. When the Lord told Abraham to get out of Ur of the Chaldees, he told him, you get away from your country and you get away from your family and you go to a land that I will tell you and show you, right? And I'm going to bless you. But did he do that? No. He told his dad, (laughs) Tara, dad, God's called me. This God of the universe has called me to a new land. I'm going. I'm moving. I'm I'm taking off, dad. I say, oh, don't leave your old dad. Come on, take that. Take pop along. Tara's name literally means to tarry or to hold back. And so he drags Pop along for 15 years and he just doesn't make it to his destination. 15 years, like Pop's holding him back. And after Pop finally passes away, now he's free, he starts going to the promised land, but he told him to get away from all of his family. But his brother, Haran, had died and so he took on his nephew, Lot, and Lot's name means veil. And there was all kinds of tensions between Lot's herdsmen and, and, and Abraham's herdsmen. They had so much stuff. And finally the Lord said, I want you, you guys separate. And as soon as he separated from Lot, as soon as he was free from the influence of his father, the Lord said, now I want you to look to the north. I want you to look to the south. I want you to look to the east. I want you to look to the west. And I want you to see everything I'm going to do for you. But I couldn't do all that for you when you were more concerned about your father's will here on earth than your heavenly father's will. And I could not do it as long as Lot was veiling and really hiding the will of God for you by this relationship. And some of us have those kind of relationships in our life now. It might be a spouse, it might be a child, it might be a parent, it might be a good friend. And you come to church and you're reluctant to really be sold out for Jesus because even as we sit here right now, you're seated next to somebody that you're not sure really wants to love God like you do. And if you throw down and you're really gonna be aggressive and say, no matter what, I'm loving Jesus. You're concerned if you make that kind of statement, you might lose that friendship, that boyfriend, that girlfriend that are sitting to your right and your left. And so you hang on to that relationship rather than running into the arms of Jesus. All of us know what that means, right? All of us know what that feels like. We've had things pull on us, tug on us, and and to try to keep us from what God's will is. All through the scriptures, Abraham had that struggle with Lot and his father, Terah. Lot had that struggle with his wife who wanted to go back into Sodom and Gomorrah, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Moses, as he was pursuing God's call, 
An angel withstood him and was going to kill him because though this guy was going to be the great deliverer for the Jewish people, he hadn't circumcised his own two sons. And so he has Zipporah, his wife, go do it. And she comes and talk about a spat, a husband and wife spat. She throws down the son's foreskins right at his feet and says, you are a bloody husband to me. That's what you call a fight. <laughs> and Moses sends her back with the kids. Hey, you go, you go stay with your dad with Jethro because I got to go do what God wants me to do. You see, we can have tensions, right? We can have struggles when God calls us to do something. We have Job's wife. Job's wife, poor guy. I mean, it couldn't get much worse than this moment. The Lord took away all of his wealth, all of his camels, all of his donkeys, all of his uh, oxen, his sheep, everything. He takes away his health. He takes away everything but his wife because he leaves her behind because she's a good instrument for the devil. He's sitting there scraping these boils on himself, sitting in a pile of ashes, and his wife comes in with a word of encouragement. She says, do you still hold on to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? See, thanks, babe. That's just the word I needed right here at this low point in my life. (laughs) Have you discovered that everybody has a plan for your life and the way they think you should live and what you should do? And if you would just do this, and if you would just do that, and... Do you know that God has a will for your life? Jesus has a will for your life? And when you press into it and you finally let go of all these relationships that are holding you back, and I don't mean the scripture clearly teaches us to love the people around us, honor, love and honor our mom and dad, love our spouse, love our children, love our grandchildren, love our siblings, love everybody around us, but to them because your love for Jesus is so supreme in contrast it seems to them like you no longer care for them because you know 100% you're going to do what Jesus wants even if they disagree. And that's a hard pill to swallow, right, for a lot of us, especially those who are super relational and want to get along with everyone. There's going to be those tensions. Some people, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 37, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus said, some people think I came to bring peace, and he did. He's the prince of peace, and he brings you personal peace and peace with God, but sometimes that personal peace and that newfound relationship of salvation creates tension like a sword that divides friends. I lost friends. Family members didn't want to talk to me anymore. Friends that I had grown up with, we were tight. You know, you're a group of friends, and now they're like, you know, calling me names and uh, mocking me for my Christian life and co-workers are mocking me for my Christian life and it's like what happened? <laughs> I just became a Christian and, and I'm no longer normal because I'm not getting drunk, high and you know wiped out every weekend which that's the norm for all of my friends and now they're like oh you think you're too good for us Mr. Jesus Sunday school teacher yeah think you're going to be the next Billy Graham like Dude, I'm just trying to stay out of sin today and love Jesus. Leave me alone. (laughs) So face love has an incredible comparative difference between your commitment to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I promise you, no matter how much your mom and dad love you, no matter how much your spouse loves you, no matter how much your children love you, not one of them hung naked on a cross and let people drive spikes through their hands or their feet to take their life to save your soul and take you to heaven. 
Nobody has done that. Only the king of kings. And since, as the king of kings, he has the right to demand the totality of your heart, and when you give him your whole heart, he will give you so much extra love, you actually will be able to adequately love the people around you. That's the way it works. Well, face desire, though, this is even more difficult because it goes from the outward relational tension that we go through to our own desires. And this is the biggest battleground, the civil war that the child of God has. It says at the end of verse 26, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it goes from people out here that don't really care about you doing God's will to the person that's inside of you not really wanting to do God's will. Because I wake up every day and I want to do my own thing. How about you? The Bible says that's the definition of sin. We all like sheep have gone astray, each going his own way. Sin is basically, you go, oh, I could list all the sins of murder and rape and, you know, you could go through this whole long, you know. Sin is just waking up in the day and just doing my own thing without regard to God. That's sin, right? I'm missing the mark because I'm not loving him. I'm not surrendering to him. I'm not following him. And because of this, I have desires inside of me that are constantly warring for the throne of my heart. How about you guys? John the Apostle, the mystic of the apostles, says there's three things that you struggle with. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. My body wants things that God says you can't have that. My eyes want things that God says you can't have that. My, the pride of life is like you want to be the most important individual in this situation or this relationship. Basically, it's selfishness. And every single one of us, every day, these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are like this war zone inside of my brain. And so here it is, he says, that if you want to follow me and be my disciple, you have to learn to die to yourself. Because notice what he says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me. Everybody in that day, you didn't have to des describe what a cross was. They were lined along the roads. They saw people naked hanging on crosses. Because you see, the trip to the cross was a one-way journey. You're not coming back. You're dead. And so I have things in my life every day that I have to take my thoughts captive and say, Lord, this doesn't please you, this doesn't please you, I know this pleases you, so I'm going to do that. So I have to crucify my desires. I have to surrender. Now, it doesn't mean as you plan and you, God's put things in your heart, you just lay out your life, you lay out your plans before the Lord, but you give the Lord the right to exercise his lordship that says, you know, I know you want to do this, but we're going to change course and you're going to do this. I know you want to do this, but we're going to change course and do this. Don't you hate it when God messes up your plans? Right? The old saying is, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your plans. Right? You're going to do X, Y, and Z, Lord willing. And James tells us it's not wrong to say that, but at the end you should say, Lord willing. I'm going to do thus and so. I'm going to start this business. I'm going to sell this house and move over there. I'm going to do this. And I should at the end of that say, Lord willing, what am I doing? I'm surrendering. That's what I think the plan should be for the next six months. But it's Lord willing. If he wants to change that plan, he has the keys to my life because I gave them to him. Because I call him Lord. This struggle is such a daily battle. It's the hardest part of the Christian life. Having walked with Jesus for 36 years, it's the most difficult. What's the most difficult thing about the Christian life? It is it is so daily. Like day after day after day. 
I wake up and Jesus is Lord and what do I struggle with that comes from inside of me? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What a bummer. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> right? There's this line. It's like, this thing goes on inside of me day after day. And those days turn into weeks and months and a lifelong time. What does Jesus tell us? Specifically in Luke 9, 23, he says, take up his cross daily. You see, it's not a, just a once and for all thing. Though it was at salvation, it began the journey, but now it's a daily thing that every day of my life, I have a chance to put Jesus on the throne of my life or Rick can be on the throne of his life. And I want you to know, when I put Jesus on the throne, good things happen. And when I'm on the throne and I'm in charge, I kind of make a mess of things because I have a self-centered nature that just wants to do what's good for Rick. I'm not really caring about God, and I don't really care about the people around me. I'm just going to do my own thing. And that's not good for anybody. It's not good for me in the long run. It's not good for the people around me. And it certainly doesn't honor or glorify the Lord. You see, this is the Gethsemane of the soul, I call it, every day. Jesus, when he's getting ready to go to the cross, he tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If you're willing, would you take this cup of suffering from me? But nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Every day our soul's in that garden of Gethsemane where I'm saying, Abba, Father, there's nothing too hard for you. Help me with my desires. I, I don't want to make a mess of things. I, I surrender to you. But it is a daily experience. You see, you have faced love, which is a comparative love. You have faced desires, which is a conflict that I have to die to my desires and live for his. You know, we find an unlikely theologian in Napoleon Bonaparte. Look what Napoleon Bonaparte says. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? He says, upon force. He forced people to do things. He says, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and, and this hour, millions of men would die for him. I would die for Jesus. But he has never forced me to love him. God doesn't put a gun to your head and say, surrender to me. He calls you to follow him. He calls you to surrender. Because you see, when you have the keys and you're the only one that can open the door from the inside and surrender, that surrender will be genuine and heartfelt and sincere. But if somebody forces you, right, it, it doesn't have the same effect. Well, then we have face finish. He gives us a couple of illustrations. In verse 28, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he is enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. How's, what's he illustrating here? is the ability that you started the Christian life that you want to finish strong the Christian life. This like a building project. Hey, if you're going to do a building project, you sit down, you get bids, you see if you can finance it, if you can swing it, if you can do it. You don't just helter-skelter fly at the thing. Well, some people do. And they get in the middle of it, and then the project's half done. They laid the foundation, but they can't get the rest done. And, and everybody just begins to laugh. Like, oh, yeah. They started this Jesus thing. They started this Christian life. It was a flash in the pan. That's what all my friends said about my older brother and I because we both committed our life to the Lord in this very uh, close proximity as far as timing goes. And they said, oh yeah, Rick and Scotty, they're, they're, 
It'll, it'll be a flash in the pan. They'll do this Jesus thing for six months and they'll be on back, you know, back in the bars, corrals and doing their thing. Well, after all these years, you take stock in things. How do I finish this thing, right? How do I get to the end? Have you discovered that starting things is really easy? Any of you discover that? You're going to start a project. Oh, my. You started a project. Six months later, your wife's like, yeah, we're going to finish that project? Are we just going to have that mess, that half-done thing there just forever? And since then, you've started three other projects that you're not going to finish either? I read years ago, and I didn't know this, but uh, I read this years ago that there are a number of people that start in the starting blocks of the Boston Marathon every year, one of the most famous marathons in our country. And they start from the starting blocks. Now, I, I don't know how a way to verify this. It was just a story I heard. They, they start, and then, you know, a couple of blocks down the road, they just veer off and they were done because they want the, they want the number. They, they ran in the Boston Marathon. Because it's easy to start, but running 26 miles is, that, is insane to me. But, you know, they plan on running 26 miles. Don't you realize it's not enough to start something? As a matter of fact, some of us are slow starters. You've, you've received the Lord and you haven't grown a lot, but I want to encourage you. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. As you surrender and you grow in your walk with the Lord, you gain momentum and what he's saying here is you do not want to get so far in your walk with the Lord, you throw in the towel, and everybody that you've been a witness to begin to laugh and say, look at him. That doesn't mean we don't stumble and fall. It doesn't mean that we don't go through seasons where we've failed. But what it means is when I fall on my face, which I have fallen on my face many times over this walk with God, I get back up, the Lord dusts me off, and I just get back into my walk with God. I plan on finishing. I plan on going out strong in my walk with the Lord. And that is what he's talking about when he's talking about a building project. How does faith finish? Faith finishes strong at the end, all the way through the middle. And if you can have a strong start, all the better. But plan on finishing. But it's not a, <laughs> it's not a short journey. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a long time, this life. But we also see that faith has a fight. Faith's fight in verse 31. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. This is a similar point of illustration that is going to be made, but the picture is different. And that is a king. He's going to war. So faith has a, a fight to fight. It's not only a big building project to build a life that finishes strong, but it's also one that has to battle and fight. The Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground, and you have real enemies, the devil and all of his fallen demonic forces, and a world that is influenced by them that hates Christians. Jesus don't, said, don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first and nailed me to a cross. And so we're going to have this battle, we're going to have this conflict, and not only is it hard to finish building projects, it's not 
easy to finish the Christian life strong, but it also is filled with conflict of a spiritual nature, right? There's a battle, and that's why you have to put the whole armor of God, as Ephesians chapter 6 talks about. You have to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, with all prayer, So that you might be able to stand against the evil day as the devil attacks you with temptations and doubt and condemnation. You're in a battle. And you're in this strong battle. And this king in this illustration is the picture of the guy that didn't build the the tower. He didn't get to finish it. This king thought he would go into the battle. But then, ah, the other army has 20,000. I think I'm going to check out. White flag. Surrender. So I don't want to surrender in this battle either. When the battle is raging, I don't want to cower in a corner. If God is for me, who can be against me? Nothing's too hard for God. I would think it's too hard for God for him to get Rick Brown to the end of his course through all the battles of life and to be loving Jesus, busting heaven wide open. There was a time I was going to bust hell wide open, so why should I not bust heaven wide open, right? When I was going to hell, I was going there in a hurry. Why should I not also diligently, though it's not as big a hurry in the sense that it's a long life to get to heaven, why would I not be willing to fight the fight? Some of you are in a battle, a spiritual battle, all kinds of struggles going on in your life right now. And you, your ten, tendency is going to throw in the towel, just whatever. I tried this Jesus thing, it didn't work. It's not going to be without a fight. It's not going to be without a conflict. So you have to persevere. You have to finish strong and you have to get through the battle with perseverance and struggle. Also, there's some things to forsake. And I'm not sure what is on your list. He says here, faith forsaken. And that is, verse 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. What does it mean? forsake all that you have. Does it mean go sell everything to the poor and come uh, live in a tent in the back of the church? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that there's, you're forsaking anything that would exercise power, bondage, authority over you that distracts you from God's kingdom. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus. He said, Lord, what should I do to enter into God's kingdom? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he takes him to the table of the law, which is the second part of the law. You know, honor your father and mother. Uh, He goes through the list that has to do with human relationships. But he leaves alone the first four commandments, which are in regard to God. And he goes through that list and he goes, oh, I've just, I've done that, you know, my whole life. I've honored my mom and dad. He He goes through this list. And Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Jesus put his finger on the thing that was the love of this man's life. It was his wealth. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter in to heaven through, easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven because rich people don't really see their need. And Jesus says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. The rich young ruler is the only person that Jesus said to do that. He never said it to anybody else because Jesus specifically was putting his finger on the very center of the man's problem. God was not his king. His stuff was. And so Jesus puts his finger on the thing that's the most important in a person's life. And he says, I want you to forsake that. 
Now, Zacchaeus, who is a crooked tax collector, when he got saved, put his faith and trust in Jesus, he said that he was going to make everything right with everybody he had ripped off, and he was going to pay restitution and give up to half of his wealth to the, the poor. That was his own motivation once God saved his soul. He realized he had been set free. He forsook the bondage of the greed that he was captivated by. What are you captivated by? What is the thing that you would need to forsake? What is the thing that Jesus, by his spirit, I'm not gonna say anything to this group of people because you see as varied as you are in this room, it may be that varied that each individual, if in fact there is something that God would have you forsake, that the spirit of God would speak to your heart about what that is. Because it's not one size fits all, right? It's whatever God has for you. Now, many of you, especially if you're super spiritual and here on a Saturday night, there's nothing in that category. You've already forsaken those things, right? Praise God. There's nothing more beautiful than feeling free. Like I've I've set aside those things. I'm free. And to live that way in your Christian life, Jesus, your Lord, you're number one. I love you. I care for you. I want to serve you. I want to hear from you. I want to be useful for you. That's my life. And there are seasons where things might crowd in. Paul the Apostle describes what this looked like in his life. He says in Philippians 3.8, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Paul the Apostle was this ascending, incredible, popular Jewish rabbi. He would have been, you know, head and shoulders above everybody in Jerusalem in the coming decades because of his brilliance. And he said, you know, I took everything that was considered gain and I just counted as, he says rubbish here, it's like dung, like a pile of poop. So, you can either rule over a pile of poop or you can know Jesus and serve him. Where I'm from, it's uh, cow country, Lots of cows and feedlots and dairies and various things. And, and I always get a kick out of this because of this picture of Paul the Apostle here. There, there will be a lone cow. And through the winter time, because of the muck and the mire of snow and rain and melt off and all that stuff, the, all the, 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 the cow manure and urine and all that stuff, it makes a pretty sloppy corral. So they'll come in with a big bucket loader and they'll push it all towards the middle with straw mixed in and stuff. And it creates a, a little mountain and it goes through the, they build the mountain of poop through the winter and then you'll see you'll be driving by and there's one lone cow standing on the pile of poop like I am the king of glory (laughs) and you're looking at them like you are the king of a pile of poop (laughs) that's what Paul the Apostle says about anything that we would heap up for ourselves in this world that would knock Jesus off the throne see this declaration that Jesus is going for your heart. He's a heart surgeon. And for some of us, we have heart problems. And so he's doing open heart surgery. This is the point where preaching goes to meddling. Right? Starts meddling with your heart. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's went from preaching and teaching to actually meddling with your life. It says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. You see, the beauty of this is that the writer of Hebrews says, let's set aside anything that the weights and the sins. Do you know what the difference of weights and sins? Sins are things that are obviously, you're missing the mark in what God's will is for your life. But weights are different. Weights are just extra burden of baggage. It's just busyness. Like, I, you know, I have to, golf's not that. And golf's not sin. Well, I guess some of the way you, some of you play golf is sinful. But, you, for, you know, sin, golf is not sin or hobbies are not sin or relationships are not sin or possessions are not sin. You, you realize none of those things are sin until they become sin and they begin to own you. And sometimes weights and sins, sometimes I'm just too busy with things that really don't matter in the long run. And that's weights. So I look at my life as things that are either gives me wings to help me soar in my relationship with God or are these things gonna bog me down and weight me down just because I'm just too consumed with them. I'm too busy always trying to babysit it and, and take care of it. And, and, and I could be doing something more fruitful and more spiritual. So we lay aside the weights. We lay aside the sins that so easily beset us and ensnare us. And then we run with race, the, with endurance, the race that is set before us. H- have you noticed, I mean, can sprinters get any more naked when they sprint anymore? Right, I mean, they're down to the, just the most tight, you know, they don't want anything to slow. You don't see a guy in army boots and an 80-pound pack getting ready to sprint, right? He's got to lay aside the weight. <laughs> He's got to set it aside. And they want to be as light as possible to run that race with endurance. And Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Who's at the finish line? Who am I running towards? I'm running towards Jesus. And these weights and these sins, they're, they're keeping me from really accomplishing what God wants me to do. And every heart has to wrestle through in their life what those things are. And it doesn't mean you have to figure out some grandiose plan to serve God. Just simply say, hey, are you able to love Jesus every day and love the people around you and to share his love? That's the simple Christian life. Are you so bogged down with other things that it's just your life is not a fruitful place that you would like it to be? When you think about all of these mathematics of faith and what the incredible cost and Jesus is calling to us, to us to perform and to follow in relationship with him, you go, well, what's the reward? You know, Peter asked that one day. And as a servant of God, I've been a pastor for these 32 years, 33 years. And there have been times when I'm mopey and sad about like, yeah, but Lord, what's, what's the reward of laying down your life in this way? Peter asked that question one day to Jesus, and this is how Jesus responded in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 33. He said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, mother, children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. You see, when I pursue Jesus with all of my heart and I look around at the world and they seem to be pursuing their own course and making headway in life and they seem to be getting first place in this world and I as a servant 
am getting last place in this world, I can get discouraged. But Jesus said, just realize this. Now there are people that they're crushing it in this world. Jesus is not their Lord. And they're experiencing success. They're experiencing affluence. They're experiencing all these things. But Jesus is not on the throne of their life. And in this world, they're first. And as a servant, I'm last. But when the roles are reversed in eternity, those who are servants of Jesus here will be first there and they will be last. So ultimately you have to ask yourself, where do I wanna be first? Do I wanna be first in this planet? Or do I wanna be first from the perspective of who Jesus is? And he says, you know what? If you lay your life down and you serve me, I'm gonna bless you with all these other relationships. And the Lord's done that in my life and my wife's. You know, we're here serving, and, uh, and it was one of the hardest things for my wife and I to come here and serve for the simple reason. We're living in beautiful upstate New York next to my daughter and son-in-law and our granddaughter. And my g- granddaughter, who is two and a half, she would come over at six or seven in the morning. She knocks on the door. Bapo, I'm Bapo. 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 And I would get to hang out with my granddaughter. Now, grandkids truly are the coolest things since sliced bread, right? And so we had this privilege of just being there for a year and just hanging out with our children, our grown children and our grandkids. And because we've always been so tight as a family, it was such, I mean, I can't describe the relational, emotional blessing for me and my wife. And then they recently just had our grandson and we got to hang out with him. And we visited him two weeks ago. And we've been here for six months. And when we visited him two weeks ago, I can tell you, inside of me, I'm like, why do I have to be on the West Coast? Why do I have to be out here serving you, Lord? How, how come I have to, how come, you know, other, I'm here and families have their grandkids around them. How come I don't get that? And the Lord just reminded me of this promise. He said, you know what? You're giving up a relationship right now. Not that we can't see each other, but you become those grandparents that see, because they live on the East Coast. Okay, we're going to see them twice a year for three days. You know what I mean? I'm still not quite sure you guys are worth it. So, (laughs) just sharing my heart with you in a very real way. People of God speak. What the battle is, what's going on. But I want you to know that Jesus' work in my life has been so radical and so real and so personal in what he has done in my life. The Bible says those who are forgiven much love much. And he has done in my life such incredible things that I can't help but say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. And I always have that option. He gives it to me, you know, you want to do what I want you to do? There's a reward. There's a blessing. You're going to enjoy it. But I will do for Jesus what I would do for no human being on the planet. And he's the only one I would do it for, to give up that kind of relationship, to give up that kind of blessing because of him simply asking. And to everything, there's a season, and this is the season that God has me in that place doing that. And see, the thing is, is when I begin to take my own life back, and just do my own thing and just put in my earplugs from the voice of God, 
You see, I slowly begin to deteriorate in my, my walk with the Lord, meaning I'm just really not hearing him or speaking for him anymore. Face flavor in verse 34 and 35 as we close tonight. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, in their day, we have anodized salt, so it, it actually doesn't lose its saltiness, but... Uh, the more natural forms of salt, they lose their flavor over time. And as they lose flavor, they're, they're good for nothing. It doesn't help to salt the food, and it's good for nothing. So they usually just throw, throw it out on the path because it would at least help keep the weeds down. So they just, and then people just trample on top of it. And he says, salt is good, but in, if it loses its flavor, let me just ask you, are you still a salty dog for Jesus? Or have you lost some flavor? I mean, is there real flavor in your walk with God? You see, the Bible says that salt is the way we speak about the Lord, and light is the way that the good things we do for the Lord. It tells us in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each, uh, each one. Have you lost the saltiness of your speech? Is there a deterioration in your walk with the Lord? Is there a coldness that's happening in your life? You see, the difference between salt and light, which Christians are salt and light, is that light is what we're doing and salt is what we're saying. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, the, am I doing the good things that God's motivating me to do? And other people look at it and they go, Wow, look at your life. And then when they ask, why do you do that? Why do you live the way you do? Then in, in your speech, you say, well, because Jesus changed my life and this is what he wants me to do. It's salt and light and usefulness. But if we've lost our flavor, we need to be refreshed in our walk with the Lord. You see, the Christian life is not about perfection. It's a direction of the heart of faith that longs to be changed from glory to glory no failure needs to be final for the child of God. The Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And for some of us here tonight, tonight is a new beginning. It's a new beginning to be refreshed in the call that Jesus calls you to. And that is a supreme love of him that he can guide and direct your life. That you might be fruitful for his glory. And enter into heaven and hear those words. And I pray that you want to hear them and I pray that you know what they are so that you won't show up in heaven and be some country bumpkin that doesn't know what's gonna be said. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You are faithful in a few things. I'll give you more things. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your incredible love. And we pray that you would search our hearts with the truth of your scriptures that your spirit would write them upon our hearts and upon our minds, that you would strengthen us for our service and our love and our relationship with you, that we might be salt and light for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Let's stand together and sing this closing song. May the Lord keep you in his incredible grace as you walk in fellowship with him this week. See you in prayer if you can make it on Tuesday or Thursday at 9 a.m. in the sanctuary for prayer or Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. Let's worship the King.